Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. This is an extra episode to let you know about my new book. It's called How Democracy Ends. It comes out this Thursday and it is the book of the lecture that we put out earlier this year. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, the magazine that publishes its political analysis in between essays on art and history, philosophy and technology, Princess Margaret or the Garden of Eden. Visit lrb.co.uk forward slash talking for a reading list of similarly eclectic pieces to accompany today's episode and a special subscription offer for Talking Politics listeners. Six months of the LRB for just £1 an issue. I've got Helen Thompson and Chris Bickerton here with me, and for once they're going to ask me some questions. But before that, we're just going to play a little clip of that lecture. I gave it at Churchill College in Cambridge. Just the introduction, because it explains why I wrote the book and why I think it matters. So I think it's a real question, how does democracy end? But that's not my main motivation for writing the book or what I'm going to talk to you about this evening. I think we have the wrong framework for answering that question. I think it's understandable that our framework is drawn from the history of modern democracy. And by the history of modern democracy, I think this thing that we call democracy is not that old. I don't think it goes back to the founding of the American Republic. You can't found a democracy on slavery. I don't think in the British case it goes back to the 19th century. I think it's about 100 years old. I'm talking about universal franchise, mass political party, electoral democracy of the kind that we've had in this country since really the end of the First World War and has gradually spread over those 100 years around the world. That kind of democracy has had many periods of failure in its 100-year history. And so it is entirely understandable that when we try and imagine in our minds what would it be like for a democracy like ours to fail, we go back to the points where it has failed. So you will be aware, and I'll give you a few examples, but there are countless examples of this, that when people try to think about what would it mean for our democracy to fail, one of the shorthands they use is it would mean going back to the 1930s. You hear that a lot. There are basically two decades from the 20th century that get pulled into this argument, the 1930s and the 1970s. The 30s for obvious reasons, but the 70s, the 70s were when Spain, Portugal, Greece, European democracies as we think of them now, were under military dictatorships. The 1970s was when democracy collapsed in Latin America. It was the Pinochet coup. Democracy collapsed in Asia. Nascent democracies collapsed in Africa. The 1970s is one model, but the 1930s is the kind of defining model. And you hear this talk everywhere. So I'll just give you a few examples. I first noticed it uh, at the height of the Euro crisis in 2010, 2011. So Nicolas Sarkozy, when he was president of France, trying to persuade Angela Merkel to relax her strict stance on collectivised European debt, said, if we don't solve this problem, Europe will go back to the 1930s. More recently, in the last two to three years, this has been said all the time. And with the election of Donald Trump, it's become a kind of trope of our public life. My colleague in Cambridge, Professor Richard Evans, um, I'm sure many people will have read his books, The Great Historian of the Third Reich. 
in a careful, measured, but serious way, he has made the case that we have to recognize the parallels between the collapse of the Weimar Republic and the election of Donald Trump. A fuller version of that argument is another very prominent historian of the 20th century, a man called Timothy Snyder, who's based in the United States, and he published earlier this year a, a seriously best-selling book called On Tyranny, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century, in which he makes the case that if we do not learn the lessons of the 1930s, we will repeat the mistakes. And he has many memorable lines in that book, one of which is, post-truth is pre-fascism. And I'm going to argue to you that it's not. John le Carré at a literary festival recently, I just, you, you, once you start looking for these things, they're everywhere. So John le Carré was recently asked, <coughs> what does the present moment remind you of? And he said, it's obvious we are reliving the 1930s. And then about two weeks later, Martin Amis, a very different kind of writer, was at a literary festival, and he was asked a similar question. He said, I hate those Trump-Hitler comparisons. They're so wrong. Trump is Mussolini. Actually, if Trump is anyone, he's Berlusconi, and that's different. <laughs> but it's not just historians, it's not just politicians, it's not just novelists. There is a kind of mode of political science in which this is baked into how people think about the failure of democracy. When political, and I should say I'm a historian, I'm not a political scientist. When political scientists talk about what it is for a democracy to fail, the term they use is backsliding. It's almost a technical term in political science. Because what they imagine is that a democracy that fails reverts back to the time before democracy could succeed. And part of the reason they do that is, I would say for the last 50 years, the central question of political science has been, how on earth does democracy work? Because it seems like such an unlikely system of government. People have to trust each other. They have to buy into it. The rich have to trust that the poor won't take their money. The soldiers have to trust that the civilians won't take away their guns. All these people who could bring it down have to agree not to bring it down. So you build this fragile system in which all of these players who have strong incentives to bail out don't bail out, and somehow you lock them together. And political scientists have spent about 50 years trying to work out what makes that happen, and there are lots of competing answers to do with institutions and historical accidents and so on. But when it works, something magical happens. It's like alchemy. And so the assumption is when it unravels, it falls apart. It slides back to the period before there was trust in democracy. The rich bail out. The soldiers with the guns don't hand them over to the civilians. They, they lock up the civilians using their guns. That the undoing of democracy is a going back to the beginning of the story. That's how political scientists imagine the failure of democracy. I think all of these perspectives are wrong. And I think it's a huge mistake to think in these terms. Because if we think democracy will fail in the ways it failed in the 20th century, we will miss the ways it's failing in front of our eyes. Because I promise you, and if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I promise you it will not fail in the ways it failed in the 20th century. It will fail in new ways. And we have to think about the new ways it might fail or we will miss them. And it will have failed long before we noticed it had failed because we were looking for Hitler. So obviously one of the central themes of the lecture and indeed then the book is that we're not in the 1930s. And we've talked actually quite a lot about that in the podcast. I think we've had a number of episodes where we've been all over the place in times of... Looking for the decade. Looking for the decade that is the one that explains 
where we are. And your point is, is that that's pretty futile and that wherever we're going, it's not where we've been before. The way that you sort of think about that, I was quite struck by the, the sense that the title of the book seems quite pessimistic, How Democracy Ends. And obviously there's quite a number of people who've written books in the last year or so basically saying democracy is really in trouble. And from the title, this seems like it's that kind of book, but actually when you read it, it's something rather different. And the longer that I went on reading it, the more I thought this is actually quite an optimistic book. That's good. Indeed, any book that's got in it the sentence, death is not quite what it was, has got to be pretty optimistic. <laughs> it's a more drawn out <laughs> process. On the other hand, there is sort of a pessimism in there in the sense of saying, look, democracy's glory days as you see them are over, democracy's having a, a midlife crisis, and there's something quite fundamental that democracy's been able to do in the past, which is both to provide dignity for individuals and to provide for societies long-term benefits, peace and prosperity, um, in particular, that are now pulling in opposite directions. And there's nothing very optimistic in your book about how they go back together again. So I just wonder, where's the line between what you're pessimistic about and what you're optimistic about? It's true. And I've been very struck by there are all these books with similar sounding titles. And maybe if I'd known that, my title might be different. But the point of my book is it's not those ones. And they are all they're really doom laden. They're quite sort of apocalyptic, some of them. We're kind of right on the edge of the abyss. And I really don't think we are. I don't think there's this cliff edge. And we're waiting for the moment where we realise we've stepped over it and we're now falling. It will be a long, drawn-out process. I do think you've got to think in any political system about what comes next. I mean, it's sort of criminally irresponsible to assume that the present is permanent. And what comes next, I do have a chapter called Something Better, and it could be better. There's no reason why democracy has to be the only possible solution to our problems. But my sense of it is that the risks that we run are not the risks that all these other books think we run, which are Return to Fascism. Yeah, we've got Madeleine Albright's new one out, Fascism, A Warning. That's the sort of emblematic one. That's not the risk that we run. I'm not saying it's not the risk that some societies run. And part of the point of the book is to say that the West is not the world. But in our societies in America, in Britain, in Western Europe, it's a drawn-out demise. And thinking about a drawn-out demise, particularly in an age of digital technology is a whole new framework. And I'm a historian, and I really, really think that history is dangerous here because the point, as I said in the lecture, is that we miss what's really going on. So am I an optimist or a pessimist? One of the things I've been thinking about recently is, of all the books that have been published, the one that I actually felt chimes with mine is the new optimism book, Factfulness, by Hans Rosling, which is one of these, it's Bill Gates's new favourite book, one of these books that says... People just don't know how much better the world is than it was a generation ago. And that most intelligent people are trapped in a 40-year-old mindset. When they describe the world, they describe a world that existed in 1970 because they haven't noticed how much richer, more prosperous, more peaceful, longer-lived, healthier, not just Western societies are, but almost all societies are. Now, that's framed as the new optimism. But actually, if you read that book, he's pretty gloomy because he says that particularly these advanced societies are stuck in a whole series of destructive behaviours. But my book is closer to what gets called the new optimism than the new pessimism. But as you say, my feeling is that the truth has to be both. It's always both. That's one of my arguments. Like, is Facebook good or bad for democracy? It's both. Is democracy doing well or doing badly? It's both. I mean, I'm a risk or a pessimist, and you're looking at me sceptically here. You can be both. You can, but I just want to push you on this question of this matter of how the individual dignity and the substantive 
benefits go back together again because you could be read as saying that actually we don't really see how to deal with that problem and yet there are some other reasons why we might be optimistic indeed there's quite a bit of optimism that comes out of your discussion of technology in a number of ways but on that particular problem that you've identified and I think you're absolutely right that that is crucial to democracies problems in a number of respects at least in western democracies is there any way they go back together again so I think that's a really good example of exactly what I'm trying to say which is you could argue that technology is good for both of the two bits of democracy that make it for the past 100 years a very successful form of politics in that the problem solving benefit delivering bit providing practical solutions to people's problems there's no reason why this democracy shouldn't enhance that it's technical sophistication the sophistication of people who design these machines why couldn't and shouldn't we deliver better public services more efficient public services at the same time it we can see it it is enhancing people's capacity for voice and expression and channeling anger and being heard and that's democracy too so democracy is about people being heard this technology makes it easier for people to be heard and it makes it easier for problems to be solved the problem is it pulls those two things further apart so it could be enhancing the two bits of democracy and pulling apart the thing that gives democracy its unique selling point which that it somehow combines dignity and problem solving so the anger goes over here people could see me I'm pointing that way and the problem solving goes over here so is that good or bad for democracy probably in the long run it's bad but while we're going through it things are being enhanced people are more empowered problems are being solved and democracy falls apart but that is what makes you an optimist because the technology is doing the problem solving yeah it's doing the problem solving but in in doing that it's hollowing out politics i read it slightly differently um good <laughs> and i this is what i wanted to ask you about but before i do that i think the what we were just discussing now another way of thinking about it which in some ways you allude to in the book, we don't say directly, is that it's really about the relationship between democracy and capitalism. Now, you talk about the China model. It's a capitalist system, but it's not a democratic system. And so there the trade-off is one way, but not the other. Historically, there's been a combination of democracy and capitalism. Wolfgang Strick calls this the age of democratic capitalism. But then it's coming apart. I suppose I did wonder whether you talk about democracy, but not about capitalism as such and so you load a huge number of things onto democratic politics including all of the economic benefits that come from a capitalist system so that obviously burdens democracy greatly but on technology I mean I thought this was absolutely fascinating it really got me thinking there's a line it's where you're discussing Facebook and there's a line where you say especially Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook as a whole is trying to provide this idea of a global community but there is a complete contradiction between the political universality of the Facebook community and its extreme sociological exclusivity, which is true. I mean, very few people work for Facebook. Exactly. To work for Facebook and to be part of Facebook are two completely different things. That's right. And working for it is part of this elite. And there's this, you know, very painful, well, it's funny the way you describe it, but Mark Zuckerberg's attempt to travel around the United States and get to know sort of ordinary Americans is just... I believe you know, he went to North Dakota when someone told him where it was. That's right. And that contradiction, what it seemed to suggest to me is that one of the things about representative democracy, and you say it yourself in the book, 
is that it provides a mechanism for translating the way society is, so the social, if you like, into the political. And it does that by in some way making politics look somehow like society. It represents. It's not exactly the same. It's not some sort of mirror. So it transforms society in some way, but it injects it into politics. My question was whether this is the right way of thinking about it. The problem of technology is that it doesn't provide that mechanism for translating the social into the political. And actually, the situation we're at at the moment is, of all the sort of something betters you're looking at, we're stuck with this idea of representative democracy is as far as we can tell, the only way to successfully translate society and imprint it into, into politics. Yeah, and, and it's true that in that the chapter where I think about the, the alternatives, essentially what I'm saying is, and it goes back to your earlier point about capitalism, in the 20th century, the things that made democracy work went together and they're coming apart. The economics, the social, the political, they're moving in different directions. They may in their different ways be enhancing democracy, but as a shared project, it's coming apart. Is there a point at which we have to make a bet on one of these? If these things don't go together anymore, but maybe some of them are enhancing democracy, do we just go with that one? Do we just go with technical expertise and problem solving? Do we go with voice and expression and see the this new technology as a vehicle for incredible new forms of community and social experimentation? I mean, there are utopian visions that come out of this. All of those things are in some way the end of democracy, not because they don't have democratic elements in them. They do. Facebook is both the most and least democratic thing there's ever been. It's it's a community of two billion people and it's the plaything of a 30-something multi-billionaire. It makes no sense. Do you just basically accept that you've got to put your money on one of these? Or do you continue the project trying to hold them together? And holding them together is going to get harder and harder because the institutions that have held them together are being pulled apart. And so I talk about some of these, and it includes a free press, it includes political parties. You know, the, the building blocks of democracy in the 20th century, particularly the institutions, are really struggling to hold these things together. And at some point, that's part of the argument of the book, over the next 20, 30, 40 years, not during Trump's presidency, these choices are going to become more and more acute. My feeling is still that probably the structure of democracy can continue to appear to hold them together long past the point where it does. Elections do not on their own hold these things together. We have political parties, but the political parties that we have don't hold them together. You know, I talk about things we've talked about on this podcast. A lot of the book comes out of our conversations about Macron, you know, these new social movements, these new ways of doing politics. Of course, they're democratic. You know, no one looks at Macron and thinks he's not part of the story of democracy. But there is a kind of thinning out going on there. And the fundamental drivers of change... I don't think that they can be accommodated anymore. And then, and this is a theme I've written about a lot over the years, the things that always brought democracy back together, the great crises, war, financial catastrophe, economic catastrophe, I don't think they work in the same way either. So I also have a chapter about the different sort of catastrophic scenarios. And the trouble is the real catastrophes are too big. Were they to come to pass, probably would be the end of democracy. And otherwise we can probably manage without the cohesion that came through the 20th century from the Great Depression. From So it's not the 1930s for those reasons too. Those great disasters do not pull us back together. They also seem to pull us apart. The financial crisis hasn't brought the problem-solving and the voice back together 
it's moved them further apart. I mean, I think Helen probably agrees with that. Yeah. Well, completely. Because and I prob- turned to Helen because we need to be sure that no, she the, agrees the prob- with this. The problem solving was, I mean, I wouldn't even call it problem solving. The predicament managing yeah. is entirely... Yeah, and it is a managerial thing as is, much is, as... It is entirely pushed onto central banks and after 2008. Everything really of consequence in economic policy that's happened since 2008 has been done by central banks. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And I have this contrast in the book between the, the two catastrophes in Greece the one in the 60s and 70s, a good old-fashioned coup, fitted the classic model of 1930s-style democratic failure. The soldiers come in, they take over, you know, they shut down the media, they go on TV and on the radio, play martial music and tell people there's a new order. And the current crisis of Greek democracy, which is a crisis of managerial capitalism and a crisis of finance capitalism, in a much more affluent, much more elderly, much more stable society... And in this weird way, democracy has coped in Greece, and it's also failed. And that's nothing like the earlier story, because the signals of failure, they don't come to the surface. I mean, that's part of the other problem with our democracies, which is we're looking for the moment when we know we've got a real problem. And the real problems are actually quite capable of remaining under the surface for a generation or more, and therefore remaining unsolved. If, um, and I wear that's the pessimistic bit. Sometimes in the book, I thought there was, you know, some real pessimism. So one thing that I, I thought struck me was you make a very strong claim that the past is not the best reference point for thinking about the current state of democracy. But you also say very strongly that historically speaking, one of the principal ways in which democracy has been able to overcome its previous crises has been through war. Mm. And obviously, I'm not the only person who thinks that. No, of course, yeah, I mean, it's quite... But but in that sense, you are also saying the past is very relevant because war has been the way... Yeah, I'm a historian. I'm not saying we don't look at the past. But is there not a, a case to be made to say that, you know, violence and the relationship we have to violence is something that has changed? So insofar as it was the kind of engine of social transformation in the past, there's no reason to presuppose that the absence of violence means we can't have those kinds of social transformation. Yeah, the things that I say make now different. One is to do with how old we are, one is to do with how prosperous we are, one is to do with how relatively peaceful we are. And of course, it would be madness to say that if war is the historic solution to our problems and we were in a rut, we need a war to get out of that rut. It's not going to work like that. And of course it's possible. I mean, the fact that violence has been the engine of change, you would have to be a pure determinist to think that, therefore, that's the only way it can happen in the future. It's also true that a lot of violence has just changed its character. It's not like we live in non-violent societies. A lot of it has moved online. I mean, our politics is quite violent at the moment in terms of the abuse that's meted out. It's just not sticks and stones violence. It's name-calling violence, but that's violence too. So there is violence there, and there will be, well, there will be wars in the 21st century, and there will be new kinds of violence, and it could be cyber and so on. But it's very unlikely to have that galvanizing effect because, and this is one of my arguments in the book, violence isn't a collective experience in the way that it has been in the past. I mean, it's a, you know, we live in a macro-micro world. 
course there's the risk of nuclear war which would be a collective experience but that wouldn't galvanize anyone but most experiences of violence as most human experiences now are really parceled out quite individualized i mean people suffering terrible things but actually in more hidden ways in lots of ways so it's not violence is not going to be part of this story but it will be new and that's why it's so important not i think to be trapped in thinking that the historic experiences shape how we spot the signs the signs are going to be different and the optimistic part of the book is the hope that there are ways of engineering change without violence because frankly if there aren't we're really stuck there have to be if the human story is going to have a happy continuation there is no good historical parallel for this i mean i should also say that you know if there is a decade the decade that i say we are like is the 1890s and we've talked about it a bit here the last great real decade of populism technological change and so on and i say in the book explicitly there is an optimistic and a pessimistic reading of that story the optimistic reading of that story is that social democratic reform in the early 1900s new kinds of governments new kinds of politics new kinds of political engagement did address rising inequality technological change and that ship was starting to write itself through politics through democracy the pessimistic part of the story is actually the thing that triggered the change was the first world war that second one is not an option for us the third world war is not an option for us so it has to be the first but the difficulty is and again it's a big part of my argument in the book doing it in the young days of democracy where it's full of unfulfilled potential and all these things haven't been tried the dawn of the 20th century a welfare state hadn't been tried extensive national debt hadn't been tried income tax hadn't really been tried a big government bureaucracy hadn't been tried we've done all those things to death now so we have to find something new and we're too busy looking to revive the past. But I think that is where I think that you are kind of telling a pretty optimistic story about democracy's past. And I think that that is also part of the mindset that any of us bring to then thinking about where we can possibly go now. Because one way of looking at it would be to say, well, actually, that some of democracy's apparent successes in the second half of the 20th century are somewhat contingent on, oh, it's all con- on, I, I'm on not economic that. questions yeah. and geopolitical um, questions and that this wasn't democracy's heyday this was just democracy muddling through as it always does and in one sense though if you think like that that's quite an optimistic way of thinking about it because it says actually that's what democracy does all the time it muddles through and with some luck it can get through rather than being that there's got some internal regenerative capacity that on your account being the pessimistic version of it actually you would expect in the second half of life the regenerative capacity deteriorates so i thought this book was more challenging the takeaway of the book is democracy will be regenerated through identifying forms of collective experience for human societies and war in the past was a dominant form of collective experience in the absence of war what are the other forms of collective experience that we can identify that could have a regenerative effect for democracy, which is basically a collective social project. I don't think there is an answer to what they may be, but it certainly poses the question very urgently. Yeah, absolutely. I was trying to leave that open, and it's not... The whole point is, I think, these 1930s books really... They don't have enough options in them. I mean, it's it's too either-or. It's too democracy or the abyss. And the future is, is probably neither, in some ways. But Helen used the word luck, and it is true, I think, any study of this over the last hundred years, we shouldn't think that 
there's anything excessively predetermined about this story. It could have gone lots and lots of different ways. There were some really close shaves in the 20th century, and we wouldn't be here now if they'd gone the wrong way. And even the category of luck in the 21st century looks different to me. I think a 20th century framing of luck is different. I think the kinds of challenges we face, frankly, waiting for a lucky break might well not be an option. And bad luck is potentially too catastrophic. I mean, even 2008, a bit of bad luck. But that was kind of true in 1962. I mean, it, only- it was true in 1962, and I, I had that whole section of the book, which is about 20th century catastrophes and how they feed through to now. But I also think with this technology, I mean, we are talking about a whole new world of possible good and bad luck. And we need to think about that from now. It's a fresh question. It's not the end of democracy, but as the book says, we're probably over the hill. So as we wind down to the next thing, we need to be really thinking about what the next thing might be. But we also need to be thinking about what we can do with what we have now. If it is a midlife crisis, as I say, the point about a midlife crisis is a long way to go. You don't want to bail out too early. <laughs> you don't want to panic and think it's all over. But you know, people start to think about mortality and people start to think about what it means to manage the final period. If we are in the final period, 20, 30, 40 years, it's not about Trump. It's about us. And it's about what comes next. Thank you both. In, in many ways, this really is the book of the podcast because a lot of it does come out of the things that we talk about all the time. We talk about technology, we talk about the relationship between democracy and capitalism and war and so on. It's my attempt to write down some of the things that you've helped me to think about over the past year or two. So if you enjoy this podcast, I really hope you'll enjoy this book. As they say, it's available at all good bookstores. It's actually probably available at bad bookstores too. You can also get it from the publishers at www.profilebooks.com at a special discount if you quote the code TALKINGPOLITICS, all one word, all capitals. We'll be talking about this much more, I'm sure, on the podcast over coming weeks, months, years. It's a long story. We've got a long way to go. Do join us for that. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. Better, yeah. LRB very slowly. You drop your teeth there just because you're feeling the pitch. There we go. Thank uh, you. Did I? You said, you said gun up as well. Okay, I'll do that one more time. Uh, three, two, one. Thank you. Oh, <laughs> well, stop it! I've got to actually do this by half past nine. Okay, right. Right, sorry. Okay, yeah. Thank you for reminding me of that. <clears throat>